Okay, Paul, lots going on out there in the world, and I think we're going to touch on a couple of those, particularly this interesting story that I've actually come across a couple of times in the last couple of weeks and was thinking of using this as a topic before and thought, nah, let's hold off. It is coronavirus related. But then I saw it again today and I said, no, we have to talk about this interesting story coming out of Denmark. The other thing we're going to talk about is grandparents. Did you did or do your grandparents live up to your expectations of what you expected them to be as grandparents to your children or in your case, your son? And then we're going to finish off on our usual strange news story. And it's pretty hard to to not have any topic that's related to coronavirus. I know we always say this every podcast, let's not talk about coronavirus, but it's hard not to. It, it has affected so many aspects of our life and current events. So yeah, I'd be surprised if you found something that didn't have something to do with coronavirus. Yeah. And the other thing too, is that coronavirus, I think lasted longer than we thought. I mean, when we first started recording, I think we thought coronavirus would be, you know, something that would go on for two, three, four months. And it's not, it's, it's still around with us now, like what, six months later, and it's still going to be around for at least another six months to a year. So it's a little different in how we kind of thought it was going to be. It wasn't like we were talking about a, a snowstorm or something. Yeah, absolutely. And it is now that we are, what, eight, nine months into it, it's, it's amazing how much it has truly affected our world. It's affected elections. Uh, so much of our, of our life around us is, has changed and probably permanently changed. Yeah. You know, with, with news that there is hopefully a vaccine around the corner. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Definitely. All right. So let's catch up just a little bit before we get into our topics. Um, how's it going with the, back to coronavirus, but how's it going with the, the hockey with your son? Is that still happening? Like, is it still normal or are they clamping down on it or how's uh, that going? So far, so good. The reason being is that we are in a part of the greater Toronto area, uh, Durham region, that is not being in what they call the red zone, which is, um, I guess, more of a, of a lockdown phase. Uh, we're sort of... That's our, that's what we're in here in Toronto. It's red, red zone. So we're, we're still fortunate in the sense that kids can still play uh, recreational sports. Um, so they can still have inter-squad games with, with other teams. Um, I'm not sure as to the exact details, but there's, there's still a, a bubble component of it. And I think I had touched on this, one of the previous podcasts, that it, a lot has changed where you have to dress before going to the game and everything. Um, right. So you show up to the dressing room. Basically, you put your skates on and off you go on the ice. Once you're done, you take your skates off and you go straight out to the to the parking lot. <laughs> to, but are you still sitting in a dressing room with like all these kids sitting around or? With social distancing. It, depending on, on the arena, I believe it's no more than six people in a dressing room. Okay. So do you split up into two different dressing rooms for, for a team or? Yes. Yeah. And in many okay. cases, they have people changing outside. Like they just have chairs set up around around the, the hockey rink. Yeah. So it's it's challenging. But you know what? We're a couple of weeks into it now and it's you kind of get used to it. The, the first time you walk in there and it's like, wow, this is really strange. The strange concept. But it's amazing how fast we adapt to all these new changes and these new rules that are around us. It, it almost seems normal. 
is as weird as that may sound. And today especially was a, a bit odd. Um, my son, who actually played goalie for the very first time, so having to show up with goalie equipment, mm. that made it even more challenging. Right. Yeah. But mm. he played a great game and it was, was fun to watch. And as long as the kids are playing, I think that's that's the most important part. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, yeah, so I got some big news. As you know, I'm starting a new job tomorrow. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Are you getting nervous there? Tomorrow's the big day? Well, and for those of you that thought podcasting was my full-time business or my <laughs> full-time vocation, uh, no, it's, um, it is a side gig or hobby, if you, if you will. Uh, yeah, no, so I start tomorrow, and I've had lots of time to think about it. I, um, I've not been working since July in an official job. I've been busy with tons of other stuff, looking after the kids and, of course, the podcast. And I'm also working on another podcast, which I'm hoping I'll announce the details on our next episode. But yeah, I start tomorrow. Uh, my usual way of prepping for new jobs is I pull out my my tattered edition of a book called The First 90 Days, which is... Um, I was just going to ask you on that. The first 90 days, I, we've talked about this before. Yes, we have a good impression. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, if it were a paper copy, it would be a tattered tome for sure. Uh, it's a, it's a, I use it, I have it on my Kindle, so I, I should really buy a hard copy of it because it, it's probably would be easier to reference the different sections. But in a nutshell, the book helps people get up to speed in their first 90 days of a new job and everything from identifying, you know, what type of situation you're going into. Is it a, a startup? Is it a, um, is it a, a turnaround scenario? Like just the various types of, you know, is it a restructure? Like what, what kind of situation are you walking into? Um, now, admittedly, the, the book is kind of geared toward like CEOs and people that are joining companies of which they're going to be leading. Um, but there's tons of good stuff in there. Things like how to communicate with your boss, how you learn how to communicate with your boss more than anything. No, it doesn't say here's how you should. It's It's, it's things like how to how to talk to your boss about how they want to be communicated with and, and about getting early wins, getting wins as quickly as possible. The, the opening of the book starts out with the, the president of the United States has 120 days to, to what is it? Um, yeah. The president of the United States has 120 days to prove himself. You get 90. And so the idea is once the president speaks, you know, that first sort of state of the union, mm -hmm. like when they become president, they do yeah, that kind right. of yeah. report out, hey, it's my first 120 days. Here's what's happening. Here's how it's going. Well, most people don't get that much time. They get 90 days. And that's the premise of the book. Just flattening that curve of, of when you are actually adding to the bottom line instead of subtracting from it as a new employee. Yeah. And it sounds like such a, a simple an important concept, but a lot of people aren't really aware of the whole 90 days concept of, of making a good impression. Mm -hmm. It really is so important because you're right. You want to set yourself up for success and make a good impression on management within that first 90 days. And it really is so important. I think most people would probably agree that, you know, usually it takes six months, even up to a year to truly get comfortable in a job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yes, that's true. That yeah. probably is still true. But 
by following the 90 day program, if you can, if you can get yourself up to speed quicker so that maybe after six months, you feel that you are fully, um, fully productive and, and I guess fully geared up for, for the challenges of, of the new job. Uh, yeah. If, if you can cut that in half, then think about the possibilities. Think about yeah. the, the, the wins you're going to get with your manager. So that I think that's that's excellent advice to to give to anyone who is starting a career change or of any kind. Yeah, I'll, I'll put that link into the show notes so people can have a look. It's the first ninety days by Michael Watkins, and uh, I highly recommend it for anyone starting a new job. I've used it at least a half a dozen times, whether it was for a new, new joining a new firm or taking a new position. There's tons of good stuff in there. Highly recommend it. And the other thing too is that you're starting a new job during the COVID pandemic, mm-hmm. which is very different. So I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are looking for work or contemplating career changes. So perhaps next podcast, once you've had a, a couple of weeks under your under your belt, um, I'd be interested to know your experiences, your thoughts on trying to onboard, trying to to conduct orientation of, of being in a in a brand new company in a brand new role yeah uh, certainly the the new challenges of not being in an office not seeing people face to face it's interesting times indeed so making a career change right now um, it, it's definitely definitely challenging but obviously there's still a lot of companies out there that are hiring so you should always be I guess, aware of your career goals and not be afraid to make changes when those opportunities arise, you know, regardless of what's going on with COVID. Because if you keep waiting for COVID to end, you could be here at least another year or so, and then you miss out on opportunities. And for me, the I'm glad I'm starting a new job now amid the COVID situation. I think to have started a new job back in March or April would have been a much different experience now people have had time to get used to online meetings and onboarding new staff amid COVID. And so I'm glad it's now and, you know, it wasn't back in, say, April. Because I think joining a company when this thing was really in its early stages would have been very difficult. Yeah, no, absolutely. It seems like we've used this expression a lot, the new norm. People are now used to the whole working from home. And you're right, to have done it back in April, when a lot of companies were still trying to figure things out, it would have been a lot more stressful, a lot more chaotic. But, you know, I'm, uh, I'm happy for you. I think you're, uh, you're going to do great and keep us posted as to how things work out. All right, let's move on to our first story of the day, which is um, I pulled this article up from the BBC And so I mentioned Denmark when we started off. And so the story is Denmark shaken by call of millions of mink. Mink being the animals that they use to make fur. It says here there was a shock last week when Denmark decided to call all its mink up to 17 million animals because of the spread of coronavirus. The national call has turned into a political outcry now that the Prime Minister has admitted the plan was rushed and had no 
legal basis. God. Danish authorities worry that a mutated form of coronavirus found in mink could potentially hamper the effectiveness of a future vaccine. As the politicians argue, mass graves have appeared in the Danish countryside filled with the slaughtered animals. Yeah, yeah. this was just, I think the, the story headlines just speak for itself. Uh, this was a real surprising story when you made me aware of this because I had no idea. Um, being, I guess, more of a, a European issue, this is probably one of those news, news articles that didn't quite make its way over to North America. However, yeah, this is uh, you know quite a, a shocking article as to what's going on right now. It's it's so sad, and looking at these pictures here, they're they're cute little animals too. <laughs> well, that's true. No, but okay. So there's a question I have for you: Is it's sad? But I mean, these animals would have met an un, met an end at some point and become you know, fur for clothing. So is it sad for the animals or sad for the farmers that are having to deal with this uh, kind of like got to get rid of all of their their crop or their whatever you call mink crop? Um, mm-hmm. They call it mink farming. So I guess it is a crop of some kind. Well, that's a great question because when you, at first glance, you, you look at it from from a, I guess more of an animal lover standpoint where it's you read about I believe it's what 60 how many million links minks 17, 17, 17 million 17 million 17 million that's a lot of minks wow and they've already put down yeah, 2.85 million it's been going on for several weeks and I'll admit maybe I'm sort of naive to that to the facts regarding that industry I I knew that Obviously, the the fur industry has been declining, and we'll talk about that in a, in a few moments. But I never knew that there is that many animals still involved in the industry, and it's obviously much more prevalent in a lot of European countries. And maybe again, that might explain maybe part of our um, our ignorance or, or naivety about this whole situation. Yeah, well, it says but here it, that it, it, Denmark is not the first country to report outbreaks on fur farms. So that's yeah. that's the key thing here. So they say that uh, Spain, Sweden, Italy, and the U.S. have all been affected, and as has the Netherlands, where mink farming will be outlawed by spring next year. Here yeah. in Denmark, more than one in five far- farms have reported infections. Yeah, like it is sad that there is an industry out there where you have 17 million animals that are bred just for the purposes of their fur. Um, and as you said, it's, it's a bad situation for the farmers too, as, as much as we may not, well, some of us may not agree with the concept of, of the fur industry. Yeah. There is a lot of farmers out there that rely on this for their livelihood. And I'm based on my review of the article here, there's a lot of farmers that, basically are going to be financially destroyed because of this. So it's a, it's a sad situation all around. And maybe it just highlights the fact that it's, it's a industry that, as we talked about it, it's been in decline, but it's an industry that was likely going to be obsolete at some point. If not now, then 10, 20, 30 years in the future, I think that the growing social pressure 
placed on on the fur industry would likely have um, likely have seen this industry die out at some point. Well, but I think that's what this, surprised me the most was that there actually are fur that fur farming or or that people are actually still wearing fur. I, I, I know there'll be people out there that still will be, but the fact that there's actually a pretty thriving business out there of mink that is still going on, that was my biggest surprise from all this, was just that there's actually still people wearing fur. It just seems like something that was so, mm-hmm. like, 1994, you know? Like, this doesn't yeah. seem like a, a, an issue today. Like, where are people wearing fur? I don't see anybody wearing fur anymore. Do you? No, it's so rare that you do see someone wearing fur. And when you do, you kind of do a double take saying, really? You're wearing fur? Now, they do use fur in in some jackets will have like a fur collar. Yeah, that's true. Like the, the Canada Goose jackets. The Canada Goose jackets, fur. yes. So you do see it there. It's certainly not mink. Um, but mm-hmm. I wanted to just touch on one more thing before we talk kind of about the fur industry. The whole thing in Denmark is they're now saying that this has been a, a screw up, a big screw up. It says the government admitted on Tuesday it lacked the legal framework for a nationwide order and only had jurisdiction to call infected mink or herds within a safety radius. It's a mistake, a regrettable mistake, says Prime Minister Met Fredrickson as she apologized to Parliament. So I guess... They ended up killing all of these mink instead of yeah. actually, in, you know, doing it within certain certain parameters. And the other thing that that jumped out at me was the fact that I guess the rationale behind this call was because of this COVID nineteen mutation, which may or may not have affected any potential vaccines. But from what I gather, this was this was just a hypothesis. I don't think this was actually proven. So for them to order such a widespread and disastrous call based on on a theory i think that's that's a dangerous concept in itself in the fact that you know because of covid-19 it's a lot of governments are making rash decisions you know making potentially dangerous decisions based on potentially misinformation or or hysteria like I think we we've started to to go down a dangerous road here, where rash, deci- rash de- decisions are being made when there's not real substantial evidence that this was going to make any real difference. Yeah, they talk about this thing called Cluster Five. It said that uh, COVID nineteen originally came from a wild animal, and it was then transmitted to humans. La- later, passed on to farmed mink before hmm. jumping back to a small number of humans See, um, i've never i've never heard of the link with with minks before no neither at all uh, obviously we, you know we've all heard the the theories that it started in in china and was it the, the wet markets but even then that's yeah. still a theory nobody right. really knows right so right. For, for them to to essentially make that decision to destroy an in, in industry and put down that many animals based on on a theory that's dangerous. That's really dangerous, and and it sets a really bad precedent. Well, the article seems pretty pretty um, intent here, pretty uh, like it's like it is a fact. It says that it, it it says it states it came from a wild animal. It was then transmitted to humans and later passed on to 
to farmed mink before jumping back to a small number of humans. It says several different mutations have been discovered in the virus in mink that do not arise in humans. But one called Cluster 5 is of particular concern, and 12 people are known to have caught it in Denmark. More than 200 other people have contracted other mink-related strains of the virus. But then it says professors worry about a vaccine is hypothetical so far. Yeah, right. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not not discounting the fact that there could be some evidence, but still, this is a very uh, monumental decision that they've undertaken. Do you think the fur um, people are happy? Like the ones no. that protest fur? Or are they... Well, what, what's no, their take on they, this, I wonder? I don't think they would be either, because now you're you're killing off, well, potentially up to 17 million. And I believe almost 3 million have been killed so far. Um, I think I read somewhere that they're, the method of, of culling them is through gas or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the pictures are go, pretty grisly. It, it brings yeah. up... Some memories of another kind of situation in Europe from a long time Absolutely, ago that we yeah. don't certainly want to be thinking about. But it, I have to say yeah. some of these pictures look like similar to that. Um, well, exactly. But no, if you're, you raise a good point about the um, animal rights activists. I'm actually shocked this hasn't made more headlines because from an animal rights standpoint, I'm sure they would be up in arms over this. Um, no. I'm shocked that there hasn't been... Um, more social media pressure or maybe there's been i don't know if there's been actual demonstrations done within denmark um it's hard to say yeah i think we should probably move on um i don't know did you want to add anything about the fur and where fur is worn and stuff like that well yeah i I investigated a little bit in terms of, of the status of the fur industry. And, and it's no doubt that, yes, it's absolutely has been a declining industry. And in, in groups like PETA, People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, have made great inroads in bringing awareness to this industry. Um, one article I read was that, at least in the U.S., that the industry was, quote, in free fall. And that the mink pelts are at their lowest value since 1975. Hmm. Um, And actually this year alone, I think COVID actually has played a a large, even greater role in the decline of the industry. I believe it was quote a 50% decline in value. So here's an industry that is obviously on its way out. Um, People that are making a living in this industry are already suffering and then you have this issue coming up with the whole COVID-19 concept, you know, and, and the, the culling of, of these mink. You know, it's there's lots of different angles to look at this in that it, it's sad that these mink are being culled. But if this helps to essentially end the industry once and for all, so that these, these animals aren't being used just for just for their fur, then I don't know, maybe some good might come out of it. But it's pretty hard to see that right now because, as uh, as we can both agree, you know the the pictures of these mass graves. That's just that's terrible. Yeah, and fur industry is is in Canada as well. I was just looking here, and it, there is a fur industry, and but it is in it is in a free fall. Um, you know, they use things like seals, foxes, bear skins. There are uh, there are a number of of fur 
related industries here in Canada, but let's remember Canada kind of started out as a fur. Fur was a big trade. That was one of the biggest industries when Canada was in its early stages, certainly going back, I'm sure, to the indigenous people as well. No, absolutely. In in the fur industry, and not to sort of go down the road of giving a history lesson here, but yeah, the fur industry played a, a huge role in in the settlement of Canada and probably U.S. as well. Um, but back then, you know, a different time, different era, animal pelts were used for a lot of different purposes, and they were used for food. These days, it's hard to kind of justify that industry when there's so many good man-made alternatives out right. there. Right. Yes. You know, you can make a fur jacket or fur collar, and you would never know the difference. So why are we still killing animals? Well, we could go, this could definitely go on because you can talk about the shoe industry, mm. which is leather. And it's yeah. not fur, but it is it is an animal that we use for clothing. So, and I don't know how many alternatives there are. I mean, you can wear sneakers that are made of synthetics and things like that. But for things like, certainly for business shoes and things like that, you don't see too many people walking around with um, rubber or, or um, plastic <laughs> shoes. And if you do, they usually don't look that great. So, um, yeah, well, uh, we'll have to just keep an eye on this story. Um, the mink, unfortunately, are they're going to meet an untimely end, a little bit different than what would have happened. And, and now it's a waste, at least before they had some value or purpose. But Exactly. Yeah. But definitely something to think about. And people, uh, I would suggest everyone should, should, well, and you'll include this in the show notes, but take a look at this article. It's really thought provoking. All right. I have a product I want to talk about. I actually, this week, sometimes I struggle to think of products, but this week I actually had a couple that I wanted to talk about, but I'm, I'm going to just stick to one. In, in my case, this product is another, is a podcast a podcast that a friend recently turned me on to, my friend Scott, he lives in the US. He turned me on to a podcast a long time ago that I actually didn't get a chance to listen to until just recently. And it's called Business Wars. And it's from a company called Wondery, who do a number of different podcasts. And the basics of the podcast are that it's they choose a different business rivalry to focus on. It's um, seven episodes or so per rivalry. So the first one I listened to was Dunkin' Donuts versus Starbucks. And they've got a great narrator. His name's David Brown. And he does also the voices for different characters. So they they kind of recreate some of the conversations that would have gone on between, you know, say the founder of Starbucks and the early management team or how Dunkin' Donuts got its start as a, a little donut shop. I think it was in Massachusetts. They do a very, very good job. It's about 25 minutes per episode. Nice bite-sized pieces. Some of the other rivalries are Uber versus Lyft, which is the one I'm listening to right now. I finished the Starbucks Dunkin' Donuts one. And uh, another one I know they have is like Nike versus Adidas. And I think they have about 30 different 30 different companies that they or 30 different rivalries that they showcase. So business wars from Wondery, it's really good. You digest them quickly, 20, 25 minutes. Um, I'm really enjoying it. And I really want to thank my friend Scott for putting me onto this podcast because it's been really fun to listen to. All right. So we're going to move into grandparents. Did your, did or do your grandparents, or I should say your parents, 
as in you, your parents, my parents, did they live up to your expectations of what you expected them to be as grandparents to your own kids? And I have a few thoughts on this. Um, Yeah, I think we all had this kind of view of what grandparents are supposed to be like based on our own experiences with our grandparents, but also how it gets romanticized in books and literature, grandma baking cookies and uh, grandpa showing your your son or, or his grandson how to whittle wood or how to feed the cows and the chickens and all these kind of images, at least in North America, as to how grandparents are supposed to be. Um, as well, for me, when I thought of grandparents, I kind of thought they were going to be babysitters for my kids, you know, like really be involved in um, taking our kids off our hands for us and giving us some time to spend um, a little bit of alone time with my wife. And yeah, I just wanted to kind of talk about how that all kind of played out. I mean, my grand, my parents are still alive, so they certainly are grandchildren grandparents to my children um but i i gotta say i i'm kind of disappointed in how it turned out Hmm. it's interesting to hear you say that and yeah you uh hmm i'm trying to wrap my head around this as well how you raise a good point that we we build it up in our heads sometimes we have this uh i guess like a norman rockwell kind of concept as to how life should be, mm-hmm. you know, yes. the, the romantic, the romanticism, yes. and yeah, it's it's unfortunate that that you would say that. Um, from my own personal experience, and I would say that yes, absolutely, my parents lived up to the expectations of being grandparents, and I'm not just saying that because my mom listens to our podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> Mine doesn't, so I can I, say whatever I, I want. I'd be in trouble if I said no, right? No, in all seriousness, in all seriousness, my my mother has has met and exceeded any expectations of of grandparents. And mm. my father, unfortunately, passed three years ago. You know, he he did a, a fantastic job as as a grandfather. I really can't complain at all in the sense that my. My son loves spending time with with my mom, uh, with my grandparents. When, sorry, with his grandparents when my dad was still alive. You know, for me personally, some of my favorite childhood memories were times spent with my grandparents. So, for my son to have those memories as well, that that's really important for me. And I'm glad that my parents rose to the occasion that they. Um, they lived up to the expectations of, of being grandparents. Um, well, maybe my expectations you know, are, were too high. I, I, I don't know. Um, so let me explain this a little bit. So I had two sets of grandparents, as I guess we all do in some way, if we have two, you know, two parents. Um, but my dad was the youngest of in his family. And so his parents, my, his father died at a very young age and his mom died when I was like nine or 10. And I actually have some nice memories of her. She was kind of that image of grandmother, you know, cooking, baking and 
and making treats and which she took me to the movies. I remember seeing the Muppet movie was one of the movies I went to see with her. And that's always a nice memory. I remember walking to the theater from her house. She lived in a, a downtown uh, in East York in Toronto. So I still remember that walk to the movies to see in ice cream and things like that. I think so I have some expectations around uh, that. And in my mother's side, one of the challenges with my mother's parents were they spoke, they didn't speak English very well. So there was a little bit of a limitation. But I used to go over there a lot and, and used to have a really good time at their place. Um, I loved going to my grand, my grandmother's house. And so I think when I thought about what that would be like for my kids, I just... I just feel like, well, number one, I feel like my parents have more of a life than I expected them to, um, that I thought they would be more like, okay, let's push our lives aside and, and, you know, go look after grandkids. So that's maybe a a wrong expectation for me to have thought they're just going to push everything aside and become full-time grandparents. But grandparents can still have full life. And still make time for grandkids. So again, circling back to my example, my my mother, who's seventy eight and extremely active, golfs three four times a week, um, very active social life, but she still makes time for for my son. Um, you know, no matter how busy she is, she always finds the time. So I think you can have a busy social life, busy active life, which, which is great. I, I want, it's good for, for parents or, you know, as our parents age, it's good for them to be active. I wouldn't yeah. want them just kind of sitting on the couch doing nothing. Yeah. So that, that's a good thing. Um, but, but your, I think your you mother lives both. close to your house. That's that probably is, one he, thing that is also been a challenge for us yeah, is that my grand my parents live an hour and a half from yeah, us. I was just going to say that. Yeah. So that is a factor. They don't live down it, the street or, you know, uh, 10 minutes away. They, they're not in the, in, in town. So that also is a factor. If they live closer, do you think they'd be any more involved? Hmm. Honestly, I don't think so. Now we might drop them off more. Maybe they would, but I think part of it is they just don't really enjoy being there. Um, I mean, that sounds, gosh, now that I say it, it can come out, come across wrong. I, I don't mean that when they're there, they're miserable. I just, just don't think there's much for them to do. Like, and I wonder sometimes with these iPads and everything and the access to movies on demand at every minute of the day, that just seems to be what the kids always want to do when we go places. They just want to be on those devices and, um, I I just think when you used to go to grandma's house, there wasn't all that stuff. There was, there was, they, they had to find things for you to do. And mm-hmm. my parents live on a, used to live, they just moved, but they, they used to live on a big property with a forest and horses and things like that. And my kids didn't really get involved in any of that stuff. Yeah. Did your parents sort of interact with them in terms of, you know, let's go for a walk. Let's, let's explore the outdoors type of thing. Because that's one thing that my mom has, has done a a great job of is, you know, going for the nature walks where, you know, exploring and, and sort of feeding into, you know, I guess kids sense of adventure and innocence. 
and I think that's um, that that never th- happened. Th- that, that kind of stuff. Yeah, th- that's that's a real skill, and, and not everyone has the ability to do that. Not everyone can yep. can relate, have that kind of relationship with with children, and and you know, it's not necessarily a, not everyone is is going to be designed that way. But you're right. You, you want to be able to have it where if your kids are visiting their grandparents, that there's that interaction, that they're not just going to the grandparents' house to watch TV or play video games because then they could just pretty much go anywhere if they're going to do that. Yeah. Yes. To, to have that interaction, to have your, your grandparents essentially build that rapport with, with their grandchildren, I think that that's the key. And yeah. it's unfortunate if, if you say that your parents haven't quite built that rapport. Um, then yeah, that, that's, that's sort of a missed, missed experience for your kids. Yeah. Um, I mean, on the other side, my wife's parents, I think they did a lot more in that way. You know, um, my, my, uh, father-in-law is a, he's a, he's a big cook. Like he loves to cook and he's gotten the kids involved in baking and, and preparing food and things like that. Um, so, and there just seemed to be a lot more on top of what it's like to look after small children. Like they were completely capable of looking after when they were infants and doing all the things you needed to do. But I just feel like my parents just seem to be so far removed from that reality. Um, I mean, I think a lot of parents are hesitant to sort of give responsibility to someone else when their kids are super small. But I think I felt more comfortable with my wife's parents and our kids in terms of some of those things like when they were really small in particular, like making sure they were having the naps and and that they were being fed at the right times and that they didn't put coins in their mouth or choke on something. I felt a higher degree of confidence around my wife's parents. Mm Mm-hmm. And and as grandparents, why would you not want to take that opportunity? You know, I, I see it, um, you know, on one side with, with my wife's parents, uh, one parent in particular, that hasn't taken that opportunity to build that rapport with mm-hmm. my son. And I look at it in the sense that, you know, he, there's, with, with his, with his grandmother, he has he really missed out? Not really, because he hasn't, first of all, my, my mother has filled that void, um, of, of being the, the super grandparent, the super grandmother. But in this case, you know, she's, I look at it in the sense that I'm not gonna, no sense getting annoyed or angry because, you know, she hasn't made the time to get to know her, her grandchild. I look at it in the sense that the, the loss is on her. She has missed out on being able to spend time with her grandchild. And I think, you know, for, for a grandparent to not seize that opportunity, to, to not understand, you know, the, the, the joys and the benefits of, of building that rapport with, with your, your grandchildren, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, I can't comprehend that as to why grandparents wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily take advantage of that um, when that opportunity is presented to them. And I'd like yeah. to think that down the road, when I become a, a grandfather, that I will certainly take advantage of, 
you know, full opportunities to, to build rapport with, with my future grandchildren. Um, I, I have so a feeling if my parents listen to this episode, they were not, they're not going to be very happy with what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> you may not want to advertise this episode then. <laughs> well, like I said, they don't listen yeah. anyways. So, um, you know, yeah. I'd love to say I have only a podcast that only a mom would listen to, but um, yeah. I don't have that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but, yeah. uh, you know, let me say one thing, but just to fin- finish off. And that is that, are they, they're, they're good people. They're, they're, they're not, like I, I was maybe alluding to the fact that, they didn't know how the safety procedures for kids and all that. That's not true. I mean, I just think that we, I think there was a lost, a bit of a lost opportunity. I don't think my kids are going to be scarred because they don't think they got what they needed from my parents as grandparents. No, I think they, they like, they like my parents. I mean, they do. Um, and they've been great in so many other ways. And maybe, maybe it's just the distance from us to them. Um, maybe I, I don't know. I'm, I just want to make sure I'd finish off by saying that it's not that they aren't good people. They are good people, but just in my idea of what I imagined for grandparents, it didn't quite turn out that way. Um, and I'd say that even extends a little bit to my parent, my wife's parents in that I really thought my kids would be spending a lot more time with their grandparents than they are, but they lead very busy lives and they also live kind of far away. So but, uh, mom, dad, if you are listening, uh, you know, I hold no anger or anything like that. It's just, it wasn't ex- kind of how I expected it to turn out. We got a couple minutes here before we got to run, but I wanted to finish our, our episode here on my strange news story. Okay. So headline is Japanese town deploys monster wolf robots to deter wild bears. Monster wolf robots. Okay. This yeah. is, sounds interesting already. I'm going to share my screen here so you can see this thing. Okay. Yeah, it looks All pretty, right. pretty sinister, yeah. Yeah, so they basically a robot called Monster Wolf equipped with sensors that can detect bears or vermin was installed in Takakawa on Japan's northernmost main island of Hokkaido. Um, a Japanese town has deployed robot wolves to scare off bears that have become an increasingly dangerous nuisance in the countryside. The town of Takakawa on the northern island of Hokkaido purchased and installed a pair of the robots after bears were found roaming neighborhoods in September. City officials said there have been no bear encounters since. Bear sightings are at a five-year high, mostly in rural areas in western and northern Japan, national broadcaster NHK has reported. There have been dozens of attacks so far in 2020, two of them fatal, prompting the government to convene an emergency meeting last month to address the threat they pose. So yeah, they're using monsters to keep bears away in Japan. What's interesting is that I think this kind of ties into what we were talking about with the mink, where instead of culling these bears... They've come up with a pretty interesting way of, of dealing with, with the situation where instead of killing them, you're, you're reverting to robot wolves. It's, uh, <laughs> I give him credit for uh, ingenuity here. Um, if it's working, then that's great. But who would have thought that robot wolves were to be the, uh, the answer to this one? 
Well, you kind of have to hand it to the Japanese with this sort of thing, right? I mean, this is a kind of, this is something that is right up their alley, you know, coming up with some sort of technology that's going to help in a certain situation. I, I like this here. It says the robot called Monster Wolf consists of a shaggy body on four legs, a blonde mane, and fierce glowing red eyes. When its motion detectors are activated, it moves its head, flashes lights, and emits 60 different sounds ranging from wolfish howling to machinery noises um machinery maker ota seki has sold about 70 robots since 2018 imagine if you're going through a a walk through the woods at nighttime and you came across one of these things you'll probably crap your pants (laughs) yeah i'm looking at you see that picture of it there so it's basically it's on a, a platform this kind of Looks like about the size of a large dog, I guess the size of a wolf. It's hard to get perspective seeing yeah. it from this angle or from this photo. I'll certainly include this in the show notes. Um, but yeah, the glowing red eyes. Yeah, I, I'd love it if they had video of, of like a bear coming across this thing and how it reacts to it. That would be interesting to see. Mm. wonder if it has a camera inside it. No, I think that's kind of cool. It's, uh, it's a really interesting way of, of dealing with with the situation of you know having bears encroaching upon um, you know urban settings and yeah I, I commend them and in, in, instead of you know basically ordering for these bears to be destroyed you've come up with a interesting way to to deal with it that doesn't no. hurt them um, I'd be interested to know how much these things would cost. Hmm. I guess wonder if it does have say to anything be f- about that. Fairly affordable. How many has he sold again? This this design. Said he sold of, seventy of, of these robots. Seventy. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I yeah. I I'd be very curious to know how much they go for. Not that I'm gonna get one myself, but <laughs> hey, if you could get it as a Halloween decoration next Halloween, just put that in your porch anytime somebody comes to your house. Yeah, I think I'd rather have an Ibo, one of those Sony dogs. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been a good episode, I think, and uh, covered a lot of ground. Animals, once again, seem to feature into our episodes with monster wolves and mink. But um, it's good to catch up, and uh, I'm looking forward to the next time. Yeah, it's just remarkable. We didn't talk about uh, an episode that was heavily featured about animals, and there was no articles about uh, spider monkeys attacking people. Monkeys? <laughs> yeah, I monkeys. knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Got to come back to those monkeys. <laughs> All right, man. Have a good one. Thanks. You as well. <laughs>